Greetings, citizens, and welcome to Unknown. I'm Jason McClellan. I'm here with Ryan Sprague and a special guest, our friend, author and spaceflight historian, Amy Shira Title. And we're happy to hang out with you today. And of course, Amy, we're exceptionally happy to have you here hanging out with us today to talk some good old history. I love history. I love context and I love correct history. Spoiler and alert. that's why we <laughs> wanted to have you on this episode specifically. We'll be discussing another episode of History's Project Blue Book today. But first, a few announcements. Maureen Ellsbury and I are are presenting a panel at Emerald City Comic Con in Seattle, Washington on Friday, March 15th, titled Real Life X-Files, Strange Stories of Real Paranormal Investigations. Emerald City Comic Con runs March 14th through 17th at the Washington State Convention Center. More information about that event and to buy tickets, go to emeraldcitycomiccon.com. Then June 21st through the 23rd, Ryan Sprague and I will be speaking at Alien Con in Los Angeles, California. And you just might see our colleagues Shane Hurd and Maureen Ellsbury there too. We'll certainly be talking much more about Alien Con as it gets closer. TheAlienCon.com is the event's website. That's where you should go to learn more about the event. And that's where you can buy tickets too. And a new announcement this week, Shane Hurd and I will be at UFO Megacon in Laughlin, Nevada on March 30th. As the name implies, UFO Megacon is a Big event. It runs from March 24th all the way through the 30th, and it features something like 40 speakers. But yeah, we'll be there just on the 30th, like I said. So check out ufomegacon.com for all the info on that event. All right, with announcements out of the way, let's get into this week's Project Blue Book discussion. The TV network History launched this new dramatic series this season titled Project Blue Book. This fictional series is based on the U.S. Air Force's real-life official UFO study that ran from 1952 through 1969. Although the show is fictional, it draws on real Project Blue Book cases, and the show's protagonist is a character named Dr. J. Allen Hynek, a real individual who served as a scientific advisor to the government on Project Blue Book and its predecessors, Project Sign and Project Grudge. And in the most recent episode of Project Blue Book, we see another real historical figure portrayed on the show, Dr. Werner von Braun. Von Braun's presence in the fourth episode of Project Blue Book shouldn't be surprising, simply based on the episode's title, which is Operation Paperclip. Before we talk about Operation Paperclip, this episode featured a second historical event, and that was the UFO encounter we see at the beginning of the episode. This real event depicted in the episode is the Child's Witted Incident of 1948. And Ryan is going to give us a brief overview of the real Child's Witted Incident. Ryan? Absolutely. Yeah. So, guys, this one of this event happened on July 24th, 1948. So, like you mentioned, Jason, this was one of the earlier cases that the predecessor to Blue Book covered, uh, Project Sign. So, yeah, July 24th, Clarence Childs and his co-pilot, John Witted, they were flying a DC-3 passenger plane for Eastern Airlines from Houston to Atlanta. And there were 20 passengers on board the domestic flight. And as they were flying, 
this dullish red glowing object appeared directly in their flight path. So at first they thought it was like a jet or something coming, coming close. Uh, but once they got closer to this object, uh, it was obvious that it was not any sort of conventional aircraft. Both pilots claimed that the object was approximately a hundred feet long and 25 to 30 feet in diameter. It was torpedo or cigar shaped and it had no wings. It appeared to have lights running up and down it and even windows. So the object, it had a pointed nose section and there was like this bluish glow running on the belly of it from end to end. And out of the back of the supposed object was this orange red exhaust that had been seen by the pilots. Uh, Child's first reaction was to turn the plane to the left as the object seemed to be coming slightly to his right. And they watched as the craft did an abrupt pull up just after missing them and then just completely disappeared. And Child's is stresses that it's not like it disappeared out of, you know, out of lack of like distance or mm far away it literally just like dematerialized out of sight um so one of the witnesses on board one of the only passengers who was awake when this whole thing happened he described hearing a sound like a rocket during the event and he even saw like an eerie streak out the window um so yeah uh this event also was witnessed from robin's air force base near macon georgia where several witnesses stated they saw an object of the same description about a half an hour before this sighting um so Charles and witted the pilots they reported the incident to local reporters as well as the united states air force's air technical intelligence center and also project sign again a predecessor to blue book and many skeptics believe that what they saw that night was either a meteor or just a mirage. However, these explanations, they could not account for many of the characteristics that the pilots stated. Um, so, yeah, Sign ruled out the possibility of a conventional aircraft after tracing flight records. And uh, the Charles Witted sighting, it's one of the three classic UFO incidents in 1948 that convinced the personnel of Project Sign that UFOs were a genuine phenomenon and needed a closer study. And one of those good old cases that says meteors pull up and, and go up instead of down, right? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> Why wouldn't they? Makes logical sense. Yeah. No, it was interesting uh, seeing this because I, I didn't put that together when I was seeing it happen because it was so, you know, a bit, quite a bit different from the actual case. And certainly Hynek wasn't, uh, wasn't aboard the plane that saw that. Yeah, yeah. Heineck wasn't even involved yet when this case actually happened. So, again, this is where the show starts to sort of veer from the timeline of authentic, you know, historical accuracy, I should say. But, uh, yeah, a fascinating case. And, again, one of the three classic ones that really prompted them, the government, to start looking into UFOs. Yeah. All right. So we need to shift gears and, and, and shift our attention to what had me really excited for this episode, and that is Operation Paperclip and Werner von Braun. And I'll say right away that this episode took some bizarre turns and took <laughs> Operation Paperclip and von Braun's involvement in a strange, yet I guess sort of predictable direction for the show. But before we get into that, Amy, I would love it if you would talk for a bit about Operation Paperclip, the real Operation Paperclip, and what that was, how Von Braun was involved, etc. Then after that, 
we'll get into how this was all portrayed on the show and and discuss my feelings on the show. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So um, just uh, just a, a note, because I feel like this is one thing that, that gets everybody. Uh, so it's this program was called Operation Overcast, Operation Paperclip and also Project Paperclip. Um, so it's it comes under any name. So for anyone listening who's confused by that, it's all kind of the mm-hmm. same thing. Um, so basically what this was, was at the end of the Second World War, um, the Americans were looking to to bring back some of the Nazi scientists um, as a form of almost like intellectual reparations. Uh, the idea being, you know, these scientists had developed these insane weapons and used them for evil, and we'd rather have them on our side than on the Soviet side. And one of the technologies that the U.S. was really interested in was the V-2 guided missile, um, which which could cover a, a decent amount of distance, you know, launching in sort of Eastern Europe to London and or sort of, sort of the border of Western Europe, rather. Um, this was something that America really wanted to develop and start to use towards its own future military needs. And um, the problem was... Who do you get and how many, you know, former card-carrying Nazis can you possibly bring into the United States? Because mm-hmm. that's not something people necessarily want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happened was that, you know, it wasn't just the rocket scientists. There were chemists. There were all all kinds of branches of science and scientists that various American military wanted to bring over to the United States. So uh, what they did was they kind of had to prioritize who was going to make it. And top of that list was Werner von Braun, who was the one of the chief engineers and the the leader behind the VT program. So what what they they did the US uh the US Joint Chiefs of Staff I believe it was um agreed that 350 German scientists could come into the United States under Operation Overcast slash paperclip. Um, and that was a great number for the people who wanted all the rocket scientists, but that was total scientists. So what they had to do was work with Von Brown to figure out who were the absolutely most uh, necessary personnel to bring over. And if I'm recalling correctly, because I've been working on other stuff than this <laughs> lately, <laughs> um, what they did was going through all the files, they marked the ones that they wanted with a paperclip. And Von Brown was given, okay, of the 350, you can have 110 he eventually got the number up to 124, all of whom were brought into the United States in late 1945, early 1946. And most of them ended up at the White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico, where they worked on recovered V2s, putting together V2s from parts that were scavenged. This is like, it's a massive story. Um, but they brought, I think it was something insane, like 300 train cars full of parts of V2s wow. and only one completed rocket in that whole mess. And they were rebuilding them, teaching American scientists about it and sort of adding stages and kind of building it out. Um, so that, that was it. Operation Overcast slash Paperclip was the program under which Nazi scientists came to the United States. And it was this weird thing where like they, you know, it's, we're not getting into Nazi affiliations here, but you know, they were all forced by the Nazi army to be card carrying Nazis. Now, whether or not they believed in those ideals is a totally separate discussion, but they were kind of in that like nebulous zone where everyone knew they were former Nazis, but the U.S. government still wanted them, but no one really knew what to do with them. And it didn't begin their formal emigration process yet. They actually, uh, from Brown's team, was in the U.S. for five years almost before they were punted across the border to Mexico and then brought back to officially begin the immigration process. Hmm. 
Yeah. <laughs> Literally, they just had to get them across a border and yeah. back into order to say, like, this is the date and place in which you entered the country because they uh. were, secretly they couldn't like they couldn't say, oh, yeah, we brought them in through all these Air Force bases. Yeah. <laughs> so they're yeah. actually Mexican immigrants then. Um, I don't really know how that works. (laughs) I know, for all I know, it was, you know, one of the few times any of them ever went near Mexico. So I, yeah, they, they took a, they took a, like a tram car over and a tram car back. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. So what was the, I guess, end result or what was the biggest contribution that we can say that uh, the scientists from Operation Paperclip gave us in the end? I mean, it depends on what science you're looking at and who you considered, what you consider to be the most important. But I would say the moon. Um, it was it was Von Braun's team that ended up working for the Army Ballistic Missile Agency in, in Huntsville that was then folded into NASA in 1960 that became the team that developed the Saturn family of rockets that built the Saturn V that took Apollo to the moon. And ta-da. So, yeah, that's that's where that lineage ended up going. It went directly into the space program and it was von brown's team that launched the first american satellite in uh january slash february of 1951 it was right around midnight on the 31st of january so depending on your time zone that's why the date's a little bit awkward um and yeah launched built all the early rockets that got some of the first spacecraft and human missions off the ground it's such exciting history and you know i when i saw that this episode was going to deal with this time in history and this specific operation, I knew I had to have you on because I knew it was just going to be a, a, a thrill to talk about this with you. But I had no idea what the episode was going to do. And so now the show did went, a lot of things. <laughs> the show went all kinds of rogue with this story. Oh uh, and so I know, I know you have some things to say, Amy, but before I get to you, what did you think, Ryan, of how Sorry, the operation and <laughs> Dr. Von Brown were portrayed in this episode? She is chopping at the bit. No, I um I remember reading uh, Annie Jacobson's book about Operation Paperclip. So I was super excited when I saw that Blue Book was going to be covering this. I'm like, OK, um, I don't really see the connection, but I, I'll be interested to see what they do with it. Um, it was interesting that they connected this Charles Witted case to the V2 rocket sure. because, yeah, that's that's what a lot of people believe it could have been possibly. Yeah. Um so I totally understood that. So when they decided to just go full out with that and bring uh, Werner von Braun into this, I was like, okay, this this could be cool. Um, so here's where it really lost me, guys. Um, the crop circles. Like, what the you crop circles as propulsion forces mm-hmm. for these rockets or these, <laughs> you know, early versions of space that, that completely lost me. I mean, mm-hmm. for anyone out there listening, um, I personally am not a fan of the crop circle phenomenon. I think it's beautiful. I think it's man made. Um, but I don't think it was connected to, you know, these rockets were literally making these intricate, beautiful designs and crops out there. So, um, that's where it started to lose me a little is they were trying to throw so many UFO, uh, conspiracies or subtopics into this episode. And yeah, I, I think it was really fascinating that this could possibly be the earliest versions of uh, testing space, you know, high altitude in space 
flight. I, I thought that was fascinating. But when it came to everything they started to cover with the alien and the glass tube and crop circles, I just I started to tune out. So this this episode was really tough for me to get through. And Amy, I am a big proponent of the show. I think it's awesome. I love it. But this one lost me, guys. This one completely, completely lost me. Well, Ryan, when it comes to, you know, exotic propulsion and the ability to leave these intricate, beautiful crop circles behind, I don't think you're giving a genius like Von Braun the credit he deserves. You don't think you could pull that off? You know, maybe, 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 maybe this was all like performance art for him instead maybe, of trying right? to get us to the moon. That's so I, I don't funny. Know. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree with you, man. I, I, I found a lot of it pretty ridiculous. And, and for Amy and, and anyone else who hasn't seen all the other episodes like Ryan and I have, um, you know, this is kind of the first episode where we've seen the the story take a sharp departure and kind of veer into a lot of bizarre territory. I mean, yes, it is a fictional show, and we keep saying that. There is a lot of creativity involved, and they brought a lot of other elements from UFO lore and and, and other things into these storylines to make them more interesting, and it's great. It makes for great TV, and and Ryan and I are, are loving watching this as UFO geeks. It's It's super fun, but this one just you know, kind of decided to throw everything out and go all sorts of crazy. Um, so I was, I was really shocked by that because we haven't seen that from this show yet. Something else that, that really kind of disappointed me and I wasn't expecting was how they sort of take extreme liberties with Von Braun and vilify him. You know, yeah. we're seeing that he's like mm-hmm. this evil bad guy. And as a fan of Umbrana, I'm I'm not liking where that's going. So that was my my biggest reaction. Um, all right, Amy, I'm I'm releasing you. <laughs> Let us um, know what you thought. Yeah, and it. I mean, it might be this is the first episode of this show I've seen, so I was wondering if like maybe I was missing some backstory, like why the Russian woman had a gun and was a spy. Um, but yeah, no, my my biggest question watching this episode was what year is this supposed to be? <laughs> I was so yeah. confused. I was so confused. Cause like, I know some of these dates, I don't, you know, anyone listening, I'm not a, the UFO person here. I'm the history person here. Um, but sorry, Ryan, you said that UFO sighting was 1946, 48, the child's witted case happened. With these sightings, Amy, they're, they're not, they're not true to when this show is supposed to be happening. Right. And and I was even like, even within the, like the, the space history stuff, I'm like, these dates are not lining up. Right. Cause they're talking (laughs) about, Operation so Operation Overcast slash Paperclip it expanded after that initial kind of bringing a handful of scientists in, but it was definitely like not still going. I don't think in like 1961. Um, the aesthetic of the show was kind of like early 50s maybe, but then they mentioned the space race and the Russians, but also having orbited a chimp three times, um, and also oh, were Albert. talking about yeah they're talking about the space program. Um, but also they were on a military base still. So that would mean it would have to be 1959. There was like all of the things. I'm just like, I'm so confused as to what you're even trying to do right now. And I'm sort of like, I could, I could do it. I could totally be like, this is fiction. If you didn't put like one of the most notable figures of the early space age as your central character, (laughs) it's like, just make him like, like, Klaus von Rockets or something like give him a like make him a fictionalized person as opposed to like Werner von Braun who I'm conf- I'm just so confused. Yeah. Um, 
the whole thing was like, I, I just, it just kind of lost me. Like there were so many inconsistencies from a, from a history side to where I was like, this is never has a show been so true to the uh, proviso of inspired by true events. <laughs> as opposed to like <laughs> true events. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of things like Jason, like you said, vilifying from Brown, like I've, I've spent a, a great number of years trying to figure out how to deal with a figure like Von Brown who developed rockets that were built by uh, slave labor and killed more people while building them than actually with rocket strikes and then who also built the rocket that sent Americans to the moon. Um, that's a really hard person to figure. And, right. you know, there's a lot of evidence that says, um, you know, he was not – I've kind of landed that he's not he's – not, immoral so much as amoral because mm. like when you're working in hitler's germany so in, when he was 20 years old the german army is in like 1931 or 32 um said well come develop your rockets for the army and we'll give you all the money and all the resources you want and also a phd and he's like why would i not take this i'm 20 and i just got the dream job and then you know the nazi army strong arms it from the German army and then suddenly he's building a weapon but if he speaks out about it he's killed in mm -hmm. fact he did speak out against using it as a weapon and described wanting to use rockets for space flight and then he was arrested by the Gestapo mm. so you know you kind of it's a survival thing so that's like he's a really hard figure to deal with anyways yeah. but then to put him in this like insane villainous like and also i'm randomly developing hovercraft that have wheels for some reason why does the hovercraft need wheels um <laughs> it's sort of like this just took such a left turn on his character it's like almost an assault on a character it was very i was just very confused <laughs> yeah i mean they did very confused <laughs> If I can defend the wheel thing, Amy, I do know that the United States Air Force was developing yeah. these saucer-shaped craft yeah. that would have to be like wheeled out onto the tarmacs, yeah, that's and what then, well, yeah, was it a vertical was it a vertical takeoff design? Yeah, it was supposed to be. It's yes. called the Avro car, and okay, there we go. they they did test it, but you know. It, at least as far as we know, like it was just a disaster and they could never get it to work. I mean, there, oh, there's yeah, like, like a test video you can see where they're like wobbling around and looking ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, that's another, <laughs> another one of these things that was very confusing to me, you know, from the UFO side is that one scene basically sort of incorporated several things from UFO lore and kind of meshed them together to be this one thing. The Avro car certainly, you know, wasn't this this spacecraft yeah. um, that like disappeared into a weird vortex. Right. So that left, yeah. What did it do? We we uh, did it teleport? Like I guess we're left to see well, what, where the show goes next. To quote fake Werner von Braun, it worked. Right. That's all he says. I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's where you're ending it. I was also I just want to point out with the crop circle in the field that he says that the uh, the propulsion system. Um, didn't burn the grass it melted the grass i've found that odd mm. <laughs> it's like doesn't grass just burn does grass melt can grass melt not when you're on the set one. and it's plastic yeah i guess yeah. <laughs> i don't know astroturf exactly but yeah i mean um, i think what yeah. they were doing ryan was they were they were taking the the idea the 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 legend of the philadelphia experiment yeah, we're that's kind like, of what I got. you know, trying to make this ship invisible, but it like teleported somewhere else. Yeah, right, it's right. again, so, it's just another another piece from UFO lore and adding it to the Avro car and having that be the same story. 
Yeah, yeah. And I mean, Jason, you and I know from early press and publicity photos from the show, I mean, this alien behind the glass has been like a huge contention. As soon as people saw uh, Dr. J. Allen Hynek looking at an alien in a tube, uh, a lot of people were like, oh, I'm not even going to watch the show. He never saw an alien. Like, I'm done already. So it was interesting to finally see that image uh, played out and what it actually represented in the show's fictional narratives. So mm-hmm. that was pretty interesting. This whole idea that it was like a uh, von Braun says it was a you know a monkey Albert that they wanted to see how it his uh, muscle tissue was affected in space. But um, then we learned that maybe that's not exactly what it was. Yeah. So yeah, that whole alien behind the glass thing was another big contention in the show. I think too. Again, I mean, is this- that something from alien lore or UFO lore? I just don't know. Where did that come from? I mean, kind of, I, I guess, mean, in I, many I, different stories. Yeah. yeah, I imagine that just comes from, you know, stories of recovered, crashed yeah. alien spacecraft. Right, like right. Area the 51 Roswell and anything, Roswell, yeah, story. like taking these creatures and keeping them and huh. then forcing them to, to either work or, or continuing to do tests on them, things like that. So, yeah, that, it didn't have anything to do with any of this storyline at all. Right. right. Jason, was- that's a good point. I, I wanted to ask you, Amy, um, you know, being the space historian, have there ever been like documented cases of like test pilots coming forward and being like, I was forced to like do this, this like secret experiment or like go up into a flight that I did not want to do. Have you ever come across anything like that? No. And I thought that was very odd. And also he put up a very weak fight, that guy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, I think the only, the only thing I can, I can recall in sort of any, anything of like test pilot doing something that they didn't feel ready for. I mean, you could argue that like the Apollo one crew um, did not totally feel confident in their mission as they were going, but they, they didn't have reservations that would sort of cause them to say, we're not doing this flight. Um, but really their issue, um, and their issue was really that the simulator was not able to keep up with the changes in the spacecraft and they wanted to slow down to make sure that they had adequate simulator time. Um, there's also the story of, uh, uh, Soyuz one, uh, Vladimir Komarov, they knew that it was doomed and Yuri Gagarin tried, like got himself on backup and tried to like put himself in way to protect his friend and like hoping that the Soviet government would say, well, look, we can't risk our national hero. So we can't let him do stuff. And like, he was hoping to change their mind, but didn't. And he, you know, Komarov knew he was dead as soon as he launched. Um, but I've not, that's the only thing I've ever heard with a test pilot, like not really wanting to do stuff. Um, and it's I I couldn't find this because it's the hardest ever thing to Google if you search uh, secret you know secret U.S. Air Force test pilot alien um, <laughs> you're not going to get the story that I read once that I can't remember who it was I think it was I think it was in in the late 40s it might have been one of these test vehicles these vertical takeoff landing things that you guys are talking about. Um, but there was a test pilot who was flying this mission and it crashed. And because it was a secret government program, he was like covered with a blanket and rushed into the, the like medical area for burns or something. Um, and everyone thought that it was an alien, but it was really just a guy whose identity had to remain silent because it was a secret program for R&D. Hmm. And it was like, like, I think it was Joe Kittinger was there that day. And that's where the story comes from. But it's Joe Kittinger's being like, yeah, I was... T- smuggled out of an airplane to protect my identity and everyone thought it was an alien so hi i'm the alien 
also just Joe Kittinger. Um, that's it's awesome. So yeah, there's, yeah. There's, I was trying to find that little story because that's what it reminded me of. But again, <laughs> I, I uh, it's the hardest ever little vignette to Google. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you get all sorts of crap with that search. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> Weird stuff. Weird stuff comes up and not the, the little story that I need. Yeah. <laughs> Well, just a reminder that, again, this is a fictional show, so the creators and writers are certainly free to be as creative as they want to be, and they certainly showed us that with this episode. But again, a reminder that history um, does a pretty good job of providing information about the real cases they use for inspiration in Project Blue Book right, right on their website. So they show information immediately following the episode when they air on television. Uh, but if you're interested in hearing more I recommend visiting history's website, history.com and watching the short little videos they, that they produce that feature UFO historian, Richard Dolan and a lot of UFO researcher, Jacques Vallée. Um, episode five of project blue book airs on February 5th. And it looks like that episode tackles the mysterious aerial phenomena encountered by world war II pilots known as Foo fighters. I really wonder how many people after watching that are going to be like tagging Dave Grohl on Twitter going, oh, oh, Foo Fighters. They stole your name. It, what? It'll probably happen a lot. It's pretty funny, but I'm sure Dave will have fun with that. Or an upsurge in their uh, album sales. Sorry, <laughs> it, it might help. It might help. No, it, it's interesting how things work like that, right? They'll yeah. all of a sudden be trending. Be great. Yep. Well, citizens, as we wrap up this episode, we invite you to come join us in the Rogue Planet Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Rogue Planet. And let us know what you thought of the fourth episode of Project Blue Book or anything else UFO related that's on your mind. You can find more episodes of Unknown on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, YouTube, you know, all the podcast places. Big thanks to our talented friend and fellow Rogue Planeteer Caleb Hanks for the show's intro and outro music. Of course, you can always find this show at RoguePlanet.tv, because Unknown is a Rogue Planet production. RoguePlanet.tv is your home for all things strange. It's also where you can get your own Unknown t-shirt from the Rogue Planet store. Just go to store.rogueplanet.tv. Thanks again for hanging out with us today. I'm Jason McClellan. I'm Ryan Sprague. And I'm Amy Shiratitle. Do us a favor, friends. Always treat the UFO subject with the cautious and responsible skepticism it deserves. Question everything. Have the courage to form your own opinions. Keep truth as the focus of your quest, even if the truth conflicts with your opinions. And, of course, stay strange. Stay strange.